Well, uh, before we jump into the series, I hate to kind of change the mood a little bit, but we have some, some important things to talk about. Who here saw the news this week with the shooting in Charleston? Everyone see that? Nine people lost their lives. Um, you know, there's not a lot that we can really say or do to be able to fully understand what they're going through right now. But we see in the scriptures that the responsibility that we have to bear with just the highs and lows that we all go through is important. And so if you guys have your your Bibles, let's go to uh, Romans 12. I'll give you guys a second to get there. Romans 12, verse 9. We're going to read this together, and then we're going to pray for them. What's interesting about this passage is you know, we've been talking about worship and what worship really is. We've been uh, trying to, to unpackage the idea that worship is more than a physical action or, or a choice. It's a spiritual, constant relationship. It's, it, it's a series of experiences and, and responses to God. And in this, chapter 12 is actually where we learn about what it means to be a spiritual sacrifice where your entire life becomes a constant offering to God. And so in this context where, where uh, they're teaching on what it means to, to offer your life in a spiritual sacrifice, verse 9, we're going to read there. Here's what it says. So love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate peop- with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. So right now, here we are in a situation where there are people who are hurting and in pain. And it's hard for us to put ourselves in their shoes, but there's one thing that we can do. We can make an effort. We can make time. We can make space in our hearts and our minds. And to the best of our ability, we can mourn with those who mourn. I'm not asking you guys to break in tears. But this morning, we choose to stand with those uh, in our spiritual family who are hurting. And even though the response from us would want to be to get vengeance, uh, to get justice, we choose to stand with them as they hurt. And also we choose to take the, the model of Jesus and to love those who persecute us. Let's pray for him. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us the ability and the grace this morning to mourn with our brothers in Charleston who are mourning. Ask that you would give us the grace and the ability to make room in our hearts and our minds 
in our lives to take time to be with them as they hurt. And Father, pushing everything aside, we ask that you would just be there. Father, we ask that you would be present. We ask that you would be felt and experienced. We ask that your love would find a way into every hurting and dark place in their hearts right now that's experiencing pain. We ask that there would be healing and freedom in you, Lord Jesus. And Father, even though we cannot see it with our own eyes or even imagine it with our minds, we believe that in all things you are able to turn them and use them for good. And we ask in some way, shape, or form that you would be glorified in their response, in their love, in their acceptance, in their healing, as people in the world watches them heal and mourn and move forward. We ask that you'd be glorified in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. Well, you know, it's not easy to start a sermon like that, I'll tell you that. You know, it's hard to kind of start on a low, but again, it's important for us to do that. It's a practice that it's uncomfortable, it's not fun, but it's these small acts of, of just concern and care. It's these small steps of obedience to Jesus and scriptures. It's these things that are acts of worship. It's because I love God, I love who he loves. Because he loves them, because he's hurting for them as they hurt, I'm going to take that on my own self and choose to have a heart for them, choose to make room in my busy life, in my own pain. I'm going to choose to feel someone else's pain. And that's an act of worship, friends. Amen? All right. I'm going to try my best to shift his gears. <laughs> my goodness. All right, we are here with week four of... The Elevation series, we're talking about worship. This entire time, we're trying to unpack what in the world is worship. What is it? And I think we all know that it's not just the things that take place on a Sunday. It's not just music. It's not, you know, raising your hands. For those of you guys who are really gifted, it's not the flags. It's not the tambourine players. Stephen, where are you at? I'm a tambourine player. If you watch Stephen when he's on the worship team, he stands right here. When he gets into it, he does this. He looks like a Will Ferrell, man, I'm telling you. He's our tambourine player. <laughs> well, I got you. Happy Father's Day, buddy. That's not worship, my friend. No, okay. It can be, right, if the heart's right. Did all you fathers get one of these? A root beer? I had so many guys last year come by and they're like, this is great, but next year, can you, you know, the good stuff. <laughs> And everyone gets quiet. Hey, come on. Don't act like that. I, I know which one you are. You guys came to me last year. All right, we'll sneak you one. So last week we covered three things, okay? We covered the question of what happens in us when we worship. So in essence, how does worship affect us? So what we learned is that there's three things that take place in us when we worship. Here's the first one. The first thing is when we worship anyone or anything, okay, we instantly begin to elevate it, meaning it begins to take up more space in our lives. In essence, it gets bigger and everything else gets smaller. So if it's your job, if it's a problem, if it's a hobby, when we worship it, when we choose to devote our time and affections to something, okay, it begins to take up more room in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. Make sense? Whatever we worship, we begin to elevate, okay? Secondly, whatever we worship, we emulate. We begin to become like it, okay? Now, you know, again, I mean, uh, think about your spouses and like your closest friends. Have you ever caught yourself, you begin to kind of take on their interests, their mannerisms? 
I used to have a friend who had a really weird laugh. Really awkward laugh, okay? But me and him hung out all the time. He's, he's a great guy. And I found myself, all of a sudden, I realized I started to laugh like him. I was like, ooh, <laughs> we're not friends anymore. That's a deal breaker, my friend. It, that's a silly example, okay? But I mean, you know, with your spouses, you know, there are parts of them that you begin to copy, to imitate, to imitate, to emulate. There we go. I got that one that time. When we worship, we elevate, and we also begin to emulate it. We begin to become like whatever it is that we worship. Here's the third thing. Whatever we worship, we begin to revolve around it. It becomes the center of our lives, of our decisions, of our time, of our resources. Um, whatever it is. If it's family, if it's a good thing, if it's a, if it's a hobby, if it's your job, if it's work, if it's your kids, whatever it is that is your biggest priority, whatever it is you are investing yourself into as you worship that thing, you will begin to build your life around it. Does that make sense? So whenever we worship, we elevate it. It takes up more space in our lives. We, we begin to emulate it to become like it. And third, we begin to revolve everything around it. This is very important for this next segment we're going to go into today. So since it's Father's Day, what I wanted to cover today is what is the role of a father, of a, of a dad? Um, as I was praying about this, as I was going through the scriptures, there's all sorts of examples in the Old Testament. There's all sorts of you know, examples in life. When you think of a dad, of a father, what do you think about? Come on, spit it out. What do you think about? Come on. Coach, Marlboro Man, Hunter. I mean, what? What do you got? Protector. Protector? What? Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> you have a good image there, Leo. I like that. Anyone else? What did you got? Mr. Fix-It. <laughs> there are some, some wives and, and children who can't say that applies to their father, right? <laughs> Is your dad a Mr. Fix-It? Okay. We'll move on for some of you guys, right? We have all these different, you know, these, these ideas and images. And simply put, there's one example that encompasses what it means to be human, what it means to be a Christian, but especially what it means to be a man. And would you guess who that person is? Who? It's always the answer, right? Jesus, right? Okay, Devin, here we go. Now... There are three primary functions that Jesus operated as on the earth. Three things. First one, he operated as a priest, operated as a prophet, operated as a what? As a king. Now, these are all very important. These are the three offices that God used in the Old Testament. So if there's ever something that God desired to accomplish on the earth, he at one point in time used one of these three roles, okay? A priest, a prophet, or a king. And in essence, in Jesus, we see all of those roles folded into one man for the first time ever. He, at the same time, sat in all three seats. Now, this serves as our example of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a father. These are the roles that we are called to sit in as men, as fathers, as protectors, in our homes, in our hearts, in the church community. But interestingly, 
the role of priest, prophet, and king are three things that are missing in our homes, in our churches, and in our hearts. The first one, priest. If you're taking notes, we're going to have the references up here on the screen, um, but we don't have time to go through all the different verses. I'm just going to kind of summarize things. So, the role of priest, here's what it is. As priests, we minister to the Lord first, okay? In essence, when we operate, when we step in to the role of a priest, it is our primary focus is to minister to God first. And as we do that, as we minister to, the, to Him, it is our job to protect Him as priority, the priests were not only the ones who offered the sacrifices, were not only the ones who, who ministered to the Lord. It was their job to remind the people, Yahweh is first. It was their job to constantly stop, hey, I know this is important, but God is most important. As a priest in our homes, the first priority of ours is with all the things on our slate, with all the things in our hands, with all the things that we're responsible for, is to minister to God first, just to put Him first. The best fathers in this room are the ones who make time to be alone with the Lord. Simple. If you're a good father, the best in this room, you've learned to do that. And your first priority as a father in your home and in this home, in this family, is to constantly remind us, God comes first. Here's the thing here, though. With all these roles, we're learning what we are supposed to be doing in these roles. But understand that we have the same influence whether we are using it to draw our family to God or not. You are leading your family to worship and prioritize something. What is it? Did you get that? You are a priest of your home whether you want to be or not. You are going to lead your family to worship something. What is it you're leading your family to worship? We'll come back to that. <laughs> Here's a second role. Prophet. As prophets, we are to be constant mouthpieces. What that means is we are to be speaking for God into our families, into the workplace, into the church family. We are to be constant source of allowing God to speak His will and His plans and His way into every relationship that we're connected to. When we are not doing that, we are speaking something to everyone around us. If it's not His will, His way, His timing, it's someone else's. This hits closest to home, of course, with our children, you know, um, but also applies to every relationship you have. You have an anointing to, to accomplish these things. And again, you know, you have this influence, whether you use it for the right things or the wrong things. You are constantly leading people somewhere. You're constantly training people in something. What are you leading your, your children to, and what are you training them to do? If you're not a prophet for the Lord, you're a prophet for something. You are instructing the people around you and your children to do something. What is it? How are we training them 
to be men? How are we training them to be believers, to be Christians, to be citizens of, you know, whatever? What are we training them up to do? Because again, understand this, we are training them up for something. First role is priest. The second role is prophet. And the third one is king. As kings, when we operate in this role, we do this through Jesus. We lead and direct our families and lives with humility as we follow Jesus. It's an imitation game. Okay, it's, it's, it's my job to follow and to imitate Jesus with the understanding that as I follow and imitate him, everyone in my family and my household is following and imitating me. As I lead in authority in the church, you know, on the job site, in my business, as I set an example, I am causing people to follow me in some kind of model. What am I modeling? Where am I leading? Stay with me? <laughs> yes, we are, Devin. All right. Understand this. We see the scheme of the enemy is... From Genesis forward, we see that the most effective weapon of Satan is to steal identities. To trick us into believing we are something or someone that we're not. Obviously, we see it in the garden. You know, we, he's able to trick them from, from understanding that they were blessed, they were loved, they were special, to believing that they had been stolen from, that they had been deceived, they had been lied to. Enter sin and everything we have. We see with Abraham, a man who's promised to be the father of thousands, millions, his descendants would be like the sea, like the sand on the seashore. Sorry about that one. But yet he's tricked, he's tricked in, into believing that he is not going to have children at all. He's tricked in believing that he's barren, that he and his wife Sarah will not be able to conceive. And so he breaks out of his relationship with God, forgets who he is. He leads his family, his wife, away from the plan of God and sins. We see in David... This man who is created and who is confirmed as a warrior and a king, but yet he has this deep wound all the way back to with his parents where he's constantly trying to prove himself. He always feels like he has something to prove to someone. And again, it's that, it's that lack of understanding who he is that always led him into sin. What's interesting about this is that we see the same thing taking place with Jesus. If you guys have your Bibles, I want you guys to go to uh, Matthew, let me find that verse, 4. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 8. I'm sorry, let's go ahead and start verse 1. What's interesting about Jesus is... He said all these years of preparation, okay, he hasn't, he hasn't operated in his ministry yet. Even though he's a son of God, he's been learning almost. It's almost like he's been in preparation. And so his ministry is about to start. He goes out to get baptized. He comes out of the water. All of a sudden, you know, the heavens split open. There's this image as if it's like a dove that comes down and lights on him. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit. And there's a thundering voice that's heard not by him only, but by everyone, you know. You're my son in whom I am well pleased. He is affirmed, okay? He's cemented in who he is. He is the son of God. 
But yet, the next immediate thing that takes place is he's sent directly to temptation. And he spends 30 days in the desert being tempted by Satan. And each question he's asked has something to do with questioning who he is. If you notice the first question, here in verse uh, 3, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, you see that? If you are questioning his identity, are you sure that you're the Son of God? Are you sure that you're so special? And, and again, understand this. When we question identity, what we're questioning is what God has said to us. Because it was his father who said, you are my son. It just happened in the previous verse. His father just spoke from heaven in a thunderous voice and said, you are my son. And what's the next thing that's asked? Are you sure that you're his son? Are you sure about that? The next few questions that go on, it's all about, you know, you know, again, testing him. Whether or not he can produce bread from stones, whether, you know, if he jumps off this, off this building, if he can save himself, if the angels will appear to save him. And if he's really the son of God, if he's really going to be a king, what if he just chose to take his kingship now and bow down to the devil? Here's what I'm trying to say, man. You've forgotten who you are. You have been lulled to sleep. You have been convinced by the everyday grind of work, by the constant stress at, at home and the constant voices of your in-laws and, you know, your parents. My in-laws are great, by the way. I'm not using this as a bad example. I'm just saying, in general, some people have bad in-laws, okay? <laughs> He's giving me the look. I'm in trouble. Okay. <laughs> by your bosses, you know, by the media. There's just a, this, this perfect storm that we are in every day that continues to question, are you sure that you're the son of God? Are, are you sure that you are, you know, so spiritual? Are you sure that God's really blah, 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 blah? And so we have generations of fathers who haven't been absent physically, but have been absent in every other way. Don't get me wrong. We have had generations of fatherlessness that's taken place, not just in this country, but in the world. There's been a specific targeted scheme to remove the roles of the fathers from the homes to remove the priests, the prophets, and the kings from our families. Now understand this. I'm saying all this in the context of equality, all this in the context of the New Testament. Understand that in 1 Peter, uh, I have to put my uh, disclaimer out there. In 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 9, understand that we are all called to be priests, okay? We're all called to this ministry. It's not saying that... that uh, Moms and women are not able to operate in these things. It's saying that one of the priorities of fathers is to be to lead in these ways. So here's what's happened, okay? We are called to be priests, prophets, and kings, but there's something else that we have been tricked and deceived into believing that we are. Here's the first one. 
Instead of being priests, we have been convinced that we're slaves. Here you go. As slaves, we, we no longer minister to the Lord, but instead we bow at the feet of lust and sin. As priests, it's our job to be constantly focusing, reshifting our time, our attention, our energy onto the Lord. But instead, we have been bound up by sin and lust. And it's not that these things are strong enough to keep us from going back to the Lord. It's that, it's that every time we sin as men, every time we stumble as men, it further cements that lie. See, I told you so. You're not good enough to be that. You can never be that for your kids or for your home because this is what you really are. You staying with me? Are you starting to see how it works? It's not that Satan is strong enough to stand in the way and to separate us from being who we're called to be. It's that he plants these little lies and he's able to trip us up enough to start believing those lies. To where the men in this room say, yeah, 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 I know all stuff about Jesus, but I'm not Jesus. And every time you go home and you make a mistake, when you, when you, you know, when you're alone at your house, you look at pornography, it just cements that lie. See, this is who you are. You're not that. But you have to understand something. None of the roles of a father are earned. They're bestowed upon us. Did you get that? These are not things that we accomplish by our works, by our hard striving. Yes, we need to desire. Yes, we need to pursue it. But these are things that we are ushered into by grace. All right, we'll explain more of this. I know, okay? We're loading you up this Sunday, okay? But stay with me, all right? So we're supposed to be priests. We're, we are lied to and convinced that we are slaves. So, so instead of operating in a way where we're constantly leading our family back to the Lord, we are too busy hiding in the shadows, in our guilt, in our shame. Amen, right? I got one person. That's good. Amen. It, she's my mother. That's good. You preach that, son. You go get him. Lord have mercy. Okay. All right. We're called to be prophets, right? We're called to be a constant mouthpiece. Just someone who stands up in boldness to speak the heart and will of God to our families and to those around us. But we've become wanderers. As wanderers, we no longer stand with confidence sharing the will of God, but wander aimlessly without purpose, clarity, or direction. Understand that one of the biggest roles of the prophets is that they were bold. They were confident. When, when there are times in the Old Testament where the people were unsure what direction to go, prophets would rise up and say, that way, this way, Let's go. There's confidence. There's a boldness. There is a certainty about what steps to take. Yes, you could go that way. Yes, you could go that way. Yes, you could do this. But this is the way we need to go. Your family needs you to be able to stand up in confidence and say, this is where we're going. It doesn't matter what it looks like. Here's the path we're supposed to take. 
And when you're not there to stand up and say, this is the path we're taking, someone else will be speaking to your family, to your children, to your wife, and say, hey, what about this? What about that? So we've been too busy wandering in our own spiritual deserts, in our own dryness. You know, half of us even questioning, you know, God and salvation and, you know, who we are, that we are too tied up in being so lost internally that we're not able to be there to give direction and clarity and confidence to our families. And again, when I say family, understand, I mean this for the church as well. We have lacked strong male leaders in the church. We have been blessed with many strong female leaders, which has been a huge blessing, but they have been having to operate on their own without the complement of strong male leadership. We've had men who are so convinced that this isn't their place. You know, church isn't really where I fit. I'm not really confident or comfortable there, you know. Get me on the workplace. Hey, you know, that's my place, you know. You know, my job is to take care of the money. You know, she takes care of the, you know, church stuff. So we're called to be kings. But we've been, tricked and, we've been tricked and deceived into becoming puppets. As puppets, we no longer lead, but instead find ourselves tossed around by every up and down of life. The kingly role in our families is, again, is to provide leadership, meaning to go first. It's our job to be the one who says, okay, here's where we're going. I'm going to lead the way. But instead, we've allowed ourselves to be so disconnected from the Lord that everything else around us that we feel and experience has more sway, has more influence on us than anything that he's speaking to us by his spirit. By anything he's showing us in scripture, what has more influence, what moves us around is the ups and downs of life, how the finances are doing, what's going on in the economy, what's going on. I mean... These little things that are so tiny in comparison to the Lord are the things that direct our lives. And as they direct us, these are the same things that direct our families. Understand, this all has to be done with humility, okay? I'm not saying if you stand up as, you know, this this proud, whatever, conceited leader. But you have to understand, if you are not leading, someone or something else is, Okay? Indecision, uncertainty, confusion and fear. If that's what you're dealing with, it's okay to deal with them, but deal with them and then move forward, lead. And if, if you are so consumed with these things internally, what do you think that you're putting into your home? What do you think you're feeding into your children? You are teaching and modeling this form of lifestyle. Here's what happens, okay? When we begin to step out of our roles, this has a profound influence on our families, on all those around us. But there are two specific people in our families that are, how you put that, greatly influenced. Here's the first one. You have to understand that your sons, and again, 
sons in your own family, but also spiritual sons. Okay, again, the way you influence people, you know, um, in the workplace, people in the church. We have such influence on our sons that what happens is, I'm just going to read this. We have to be guides on the path. You ever been on a um, wooded trail before, okay, in the woods? Yes, most of us have. It's Arkansas, okay? It's your backyard, okay? <laughs> um, have you ever been somewhere before where there wasn't an actual path drawn out? It's just trees and, you know, dirt and leaves. The first person, okay, in line is making a path. He's making a trail. They're having to bend the brushes, you know, the, you know they're having to cut down trees. They're having to, you know, shoo away snakes, whatever, Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's when some of you guys be running the other direction. I know, right? <laughs> you are trailblazing, okay? You are making clear a path for people to follow you. Understand that this is so important when it comes to our sons. We as fathers have to be those who, it's almost like we're trail guides. It's our job to, to make the way. It's our job to lead them in the way. Sons are designed to emulate their fathers. Whatever path we blaze, they will follow. Let's go to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, a verse most parents have all said to their children, right? Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. <laughs> Why? Uh, so that you can live a long time, right? Okay. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. My parents were always very skilled at telling me what the inverse of that was. If, if you honor your parents, you're going to live a long time, but if not, watch out for that bus. <laughs> no, they didn't say that, okay? But <laughs> in more tactful, spiritual ways, right? What's in the book of Proverbs? No. All right, so, you know, we understand that. We understand the role of children, but understand to honor is to value, meaning it's the children's job to follow. Do you get that? Okay, to honor is to value. In essence, it's a form of worship. It's their job to emulate, to follow in your steps. And if it's their job to follow, what do you think your job is? Verse 4, fathers, if your children are following you, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The Greek word there, again, it's, it's the idea of we are setting an example. If it's their job, if they're held responsible to God to honor us and follow us, you are held responsible to God to set the example and to clear the way. And so if it affects our, our sons, it has to affect our daughters as well. With our sons, we're supposed to be clearing out the path. But understand this. With your daughters, we are to be setting the mold. Here's what that means. Daughters naturally seek out whatever mold of a man their father sets. Now, some of you are lucky enough to where if, if your father was not a great example, to where you were able to to find the Lord or to find a good man who helped to show you what a man's supposed to be. 
But this is not always what happens. When you think about your daughters and who they, you know, who they will end up with, the truth is they will end up most likely with someone like you. We are to set the mold. We're just saying, hey, here's what you should be looking for. Here's what you should accept. And if someone is not like this, they're not good enough for you. <laughs> Amen? The problem is so many of us have set the bar so low that we have endangered our daughters. And the mold we should be setting for our daughters is who? It's Christ. Your husband should look like me because I look like him. I'm not perfect. Not perfect at all. But I am following after this guy. And the one that you are going to accept is going to be following after this guy the same way. Amen? So what do we do? How do we fix this thing, right? Well, if we're trying to follow after Jesus, let's see how Jesus handled it. Let's go to Matthew 4 again. This time, verse 8. Matthew 4, verse 8. So again, understand this. In the same way that we have to regain the identity God's given us, Jesus himself had to wrestle to hold on to who God told him he was. Okay? This constant questioning, are you sure, are, are, you know, are you sure that you are who he said you are? And so on the third temptation, understand that this temptation is very different because the first two questions, he's challenging Jesus to prove himself. On the third one, he does something different. Here's what he says. Um, Verse 8. So he took him to a very high mountain and showed him um, all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He says, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Get this, okay? Jesus, he's not like swayed and moved by these, you know, the marvels of the earth. He's not going, oh, wow, look at that city. That's so cool. I'd love to own that. Okay, that's not the temptation. The temptation is he's saying, hey, here's who God said you are. You're here. And to really be who God said you are, you're going to have to go through all this stuff. But if you just let me, I'll give it to you right now. Did you get that? Temptation. The first two temptations were challenging Jesus. The third one was an offer to give him everything that he was supposed to have. It was, third one was saying, hey, here is who God's called you to be. I can give it to you right here. The world has been offering you every day the chance to be a man. Here's what men do. Men drink this beer. Men drink Marlboro. Men wear boots. Men whatever, right? Men have lots of money. Men have lots of girls. I mean, it's stupid when I'm up here on the stage talking about it, right? But every single man here has fallen to that. Real men do this, you know. If you go to the East Coast, it's like, you know, real men put their hair back and wear, you know, three-piece suits. Of course, it's different wherever you go. But you get the idea. It's the offer. Hey, here's what you really want. Here you go. The temptation that we have as men is it's so much easier 
to find our affirmation, to find our security in being who we are apart from the Lord. I'm going to be the quiet, solemn type of man. That's what men are. Trust me, I wish that that was all men were. I would be a great man. I would. If I didn't have to talk to anybody, I'd be great. Real men don't dance and sing. Which, you know what, let's go ahead and talk about that. I'm not sure if that one's fake at all. I don't know about that one. But anyways, real men don't get into all that spiritual stuff. We're constantly tempted to accept identity and affirmation and comfort in being something other than who God's called us to be. Here's the answer. For you to retake your role in your home as the priest who puts God first, as the prophet who is constantly providing direction and clarity, and as the king who provides protection and leadership, to retake those things in your family, you have to do one thing first. You have to return your worship to the Lord. You can only worship Him first. I guarantee you, in this room, there are men who are worshiping money, who are worshiping jobs, who are worshiping some other earthly American idea of what it is to be a man, who are worshiping their children, or their, their, their hobby, their fishing, their, their razorbacks. I mean, it, it, it doesn't matter what it is. Your worship has to return to the Lord. When you get back to being a priest, everything else falls in line. When you get back in your heart to put in God first, everything else falls in line. Does that make sense to you? We went to this verse last week. We went to uh, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 17. If you guys can go there, we'll close on this. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. Verse 18 there. It's simple. As we return to God and put him first, we change. It sounds real fancy there. You know, we with unveiled faces. Again, unveiled means there's nothing in between. I'm not holding anything back. Whenever we return to the Lord with all our hearts, that's simple. We change. And again, it says, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. It sounds really spiritual. You change. When you return to the Lord in your heart, when you put him first, you change. And again, you change into what? It says you, you change into what? You change into his image. You return to being a priest, a prophet, and a king by doing one thing, by worshiping. And I'm not telling you to go home and sing a song not telling you to go home and put your hands up. I'm telling you to return in your heart, to make it a point and say, Lord, I'm coming back. I'm not holding anything back. I want to get things right. When you return in your heart, He does the work. And understand, again, the transformation, the end of verse 18, it says it comes from Him. You're not going to work your way back into being the right role model for your kids. You're not going to be able to work your way back into being the constant spiritual source in your home. What you're going to do is crawl back to Jesus, and He will make you all those things that your family needs. Are you hearing me this morning? 
You know, I apologize for these super loaded sermons. I'm sorry that the Bible's a little bit complicated sometimes, but it's very simple with God's heart. He's called you to lead your home. He's going to give you everything that you need, that your kids need, that your spouse needs, that this church needs. He will give you everything that you need to be who your family needs you to be if you would just turn and put him first. It's that simple. Are you worried, stressing out about your finances? Worship God first, before your finances. Are you sleepless because of your children who are hurting or lost or going the wrong direction? You know it, and you, know, you have no clue how to fix it. Return to the Lord first. He will fix you, and then you can help fix your son or daughter, right? I don't know. It's simple. We as men have one priority, to shake everything else off and put God first. And it doesn't have to look weird or feminine or, or, you know, like whatever else you might think it looks like. Return in your heart. Make room in your time and your day. Talk to Him. Pray. Just start somewhere. And that first step will begin to change you, which causes the next step, which changes you, which causes the next step. And it begins to happen naturally. You'll become the man and the leader, the priest, the prophet, the king you're called to be if you would just return in your heart and put all the walls down. Amen. Pastor Larry, I'd like you to come up. Uh, let's go ahead and close you. Keys. Or Jenny, I'm sorry. Did you miss Jenny? You should be a lot more simple back in the old days. It was like, all right, you know, who's going to do something? It has to be a walker. You know. Now we've got all these people down. Who knows what? Let's go ahead and stand. We're going to close this way. Pastor Larry, um, I just feel like you have, the, have a prayer for these men. I don't know if you want to have them come up or just have them just stay there, but I feel like you have a prayer for them. Yep. You guys have been in my heart. I felt cold. Uh, much of my adult life has been to help people in parenting positions, men and women, because I know it's not easy. We don't, there's some instinct there, but the truth is, there's just the closest thing to a manual is God's Word. And we all feel like we fall short because we're just people. We're humans and we just don't have it all. We don't have the patience, the wisdom, the understanding, but the Lord does. Devin, it's a strong message today and it can be boiled down to the fact of taking, if you want to start right, take one step. And that one step is return your worship to God and let him help you put the rest of the pieces together. So I want to pray.